We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. All right, have you been by City Hall lately? It's like a giant Gia pet. It's like a Gia pet on steroids. Uh, the municipal-led horticultural team has outdone itself. That's an understatement. Using the annual gardening display at Hamilton City Hall to mark the beginning of football season, wheeling out stripes, a 10-foot tiger cat made up of some 2,000 individual local plants of varying types to mark the upcoming uh, better weather. But stripes... How does this all happen? How does it work? How does it? How do you do this? Let's bring in uh, Trevor Farron, founder of Image Metal Art, Dundas, Ontario, and here now. Trevor, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, how you doing, Scott? So far, so good. So, what is this, Trevor? Is it like a a, a giant Gia pet, or uh, with your affiliation with Metal Art? Obviously, there's the inner structure here. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, Hamilton Horticulture. They gave me a call and they said they wanted a. A tiger cat logo, but they wanted it uh, 16 feet long. It's like, oh, okay. That sounds like a bit of a challenge. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, I went right to work, and uh, basically they wanted it to look like the logo a little bit. So I took the logo and a couple pictures of a tiger and went at it on the computer drawing it up. Yeah, so I started that way. Anyway, so so explain that a bit. What is the process? So obviously, uh, you, you did it on the computer and, and drew it up. That sounds like easy peasy. I'm sure it isn't. Take us through uh, a bit of that I know, process. I know. I got 30 years of experience. I'm making making it sound easy, but it's, yeah. really, it's really challenging. But so um, describe anyway. describe so, the yeah. process of de- describe the process of of designing this on on the computer. What you do. Okay, well, basically, um, I throw the logo on the computer, just a picture, right? And I I put it on my CAD program. So the CAD program is basically um, a program that will CNC cut out all my parts. But uh, so what I do is I I look for other tigers, and I kind of combine them together, and I do a flat piece about 16 feet long. And then I'll I'll cut that out, and I'll have the basic shape of it at, at 16 feet long. So I'll weld it all together in pieces because... My machine's only four foot by four foot wide, so mm. I do a lot of splicing and welding and stiffen that all up, and, and then I'll stand it up, and I'll stand back and look at it, and uh, I'll go from there. I'll start rolling some rings and uh, do the basic shape of it and uh, put the rings on and stand back, look at it a thousand times, you know, and it takes a long time and a lot of tacking and a lot of welding, a lot of rolling. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a huge process. And then, you know, I had to take it apart a couple of times, you know, you got to move this, move the leg a little bit and you got to make the structure really strong just so it you know, holds all this weight and all the dirt that they put inside it. Right. Well, that's another thing too. It would have to be incredibly strong because of the weight of everything. Would it not? Oh yeah. 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 It's not my first sculpture, right? So I got a bit of experience doing that, and yeah. I, got, I mean, I got thirty over thirty years of structural steel under my belt, so that helps for sure. And uh, yeah, I'm doing art for you know eight years now, so really enjoying it and making big sculptures. And this is probably one of my favorites, that's for sure. So we certainly see this picture and your piece covered in plants and whatever the magic they've created there. What does the original frame look like? Well, the original frame, basically, like I said, I do a flat piece. So you got the silhouette of a flat piece, and it's about a three-inch flat bar. 
and it shows the whole out, outline border of it. And then I stand it up. So that gives you a really good start on it, right? Right. And then you got to put the legs on, and then you've got to put the front legs on, and you got to make the head. And it's a lot of lot of work for sure. I mean, it went really well. I was really surprised how well it went. So I was happy with that part of it for sure. But it was definitely challenging. Um, but the but the structure basically, let's say I don't know what it would look like um, a bunch of rings. Or, or, it looks like a tiger, but it's yeah. a bunch of rings that are spaced about twelve inches apart. Right. And I do all the rings around the feet and the body, and then I run long strips all the way down the body every t- about twelve inches, and then they can get their um, bags of dirt inside, and it makes it really easy for them to get inside and do their work. So, how do they create what we see now at City Hall out of your frame? What is what do you have to do to the frame to allow it to do that? Are are those grown in there? Are they installed in there? Yeah, so you know, obviously you need dirt to to grow the the plants. Yeah. So they make um, bags of dirt. It's pretty cool. Um, some I guess they make like giant sausages. They were telling me, and I, I yeah. went there and had had a look. So basically, giant twelve inch around sausages. You know, maybe two feet long, maybe four feet long, and then they tie it to the inside of the cage, right? Uh, and then and then they um they and then little- water. <laughs> Yeah, well, they don't water yet. They, they do a they do a little cut in it, and then they insert the plants. Insert in the plants, yeah. Yeah, I'm not the expert on that part. I mean, no, 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 no. They did a great job doing that, but uh, I can't believe it. it. It looks unbelievable. So, what is it like for you to deliver this thing, and you know what it looked like? You were just describing it to us, and then you see the finished product. Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't deliver. They actually came and picked it up because they had a right. cool, a cool crane to grab it. Eh? So mm-hmm. I, I wheeled it out of my shop. I made some wheels on it because, um, well, first of all, first off, it was nine feet tall, so I had to drop yeah. it down just to get out my garage door. So he, he was kind of big. Everybody <laughs> said, "How am I going to get out the door?" And, uh, <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, they were worried. I'm like, "It'll go out. It'll go out." Oh man. So what yeah. happens to it after all of this? Any? Do we know? Uh, we don't know, actually. I never, I never asked them. You know, so. Man, they should make. Do you think they should make this like a permanent display of some sort, or you know? Well, we are that... the Tiger Cat City, right? Yeah, that's what so, I'm thinking. Wow. You know, well, you good for that for the Tiger Cats. Yeah, yeah, pretty cool. So, um, is this the most unusual thing you've ever done? What, how does this compare to your other projects? No, it's not the most unusual thing I've ever done. I've done so many different art pieces in the last eight years. I've done. I mean, most unusual would be probably like a guillotine I've made for like a, a museum kind of thing, all the way to giant dragons and eagles wow. and fire pits, you name it, I, I build it. It's just really challenging because, uh, I mean, I've been a welder fitter for over 30 years, got a, kind of bored of just doing yeah. the actual. So. Yeah, I've seen your story. It's it's quite incredible. Uh, and you yeah. must be proud of seeing what this has turned out uh, and become, and certainly the chatter uh, of City Hall. Uh, Trevor Farron with us, founder of Image Metal Art in Dundas, Ontario, uh, supplying what's underneath that great, uh, uh, I don't know, what do you call it, uh, horticultural sculpture? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's Let's go with that. Culture for sure. Sure, I mean, why not? Beautiful growth. I love it. Trevor, uh, Trevor, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Thank you very much, Scott. Talk to you later. Writing in the National Post, Aaron Woodrick warns that both Justin Trudeau and Doug Ford are to blame for getting a, uh, for us getting a shakedown from Stellantis and that we can expect other parties to try the same sort of tactics on us in the future because of precedent set. To talk more about all of this, Aaron Woodrick is with us, director of the McDonald Laurier Institute's domestic policy program and here now. Aaron, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. 
Yeah, thanks for having me, Scott. So, Aaron, how come these two are to blame? <laughs> well, look, they've, they've basically um, they've opened up a real can of worms here. You know, the, both Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau have signaled they're so desperate to be in the business of electrical vehicle batteries that they're willing to pay any price. Um, you know, people will recall the announcement about a month ago. They're giving 13, up to $13 billion dollars. Uh, to open a, a factory in St. Thomas. I mean, the, the scale of this um, subsidy is, Scott, I mean, usually when we're talking about these sorts of things, it's, you know, a few hundred million or maybe a billion at most. So $13 billion is really just sort of record-setting. Um, of course, they made a previous deal with Stellantis and Windsor. Um, now Stellantis has noticed that VW got a much better deal. And so they're essentially, they halted work on their factory, and it now looks like uh, Mr. Ford and Mr. Trudeau are prepared to pony up a similar amount to Stellantis. So this is, I mean, we're just talking about you know, unprecedented sums of money. And this is public money. This is money that's not going to be spent on the normal things that we pay taxes for, whether it's roads or hospitals or schools. So I think that that should probably be of a lot of concern uh, to a lot of Canadians. I got to play devil's advocate here, Aaron. What about that's what the U.S. are doing? We're keeping up with the neighbors. If we don't do yeah. this, they'll go over to the U.S.? Yeah, and that's the argument. Um, and my response is that it presumes we have to be in the electrical va- uh, uh, battery business. Um, the question is just how much, you know, if you're going to pay to play, what price is too high? At what point does it become not worth it to, to play the game? And, uh, you know, when we're trying to go toe-to-toe in the United States, this is a country with 10 times the population, an economy that's more than 10 times our size. It's going to be really hard to do that, and you're seeing that right now um, by the game that's being played with these batteries. I mean, we're going to be spending more on two, electric vehicle battery factories in Ontario than we do in the entire Canadian military. I mean, that is a, it is just an eye-watering mm-hmm. sum of money. Um, and I think a lot of people are right to question whether it's really worth it. Can we match the United States on this? Can we go toe-to-toe with them? Is the game played the same way? Uh, I don't think we can. I mean, if we're going to here, we're basically leaving ourselves exposed everywhere else. I mean, we're, we're sort of going all in on two factories. Uh, and I think that's a very dangerous play. Um, you know, it would be nice to have these factories. Is it essential to the future of our economy? I mean, there's nothing to say if these factories were in Michigan that we wouldn't get some um, secondary support. We wouldn't be able to, to provide parts or have part of the supply chain in Canada. So it's not as if all or nothing. Um, and I think there's a there's a real um, rush here, largely because the governments in question are, are really interested in the green economy. And if we were talking about anything other than electrical vehicle batteries, I don't think there would be nearly as much sort of um, insistence that we have to be uh, in this particular business. So, Aaron, if this wasn't an EV plant or something related, if it was, uh, I don't know, a food manufacturer, we wouldn't be doing this. Well, absolutely not. And, and again, I think that comes back to the point about the scale. Um, you know, government subsidizing, picking winners and losers um, is nothing new in this country, unfortunately. But the, the amount of money we're talking about here is just... It's just un- unprecedented. I never would have believed it even even a couple of years ago. Um, and I think the other thing that, it, uh, the, the thing that really worries me in the piece that I wrote about today... You are a business in another sector now, and you're thinking about setting shop in Ontario or elsewhere in Canada. You're not just going to go ahead and probably going to stop first at Queen's Park or Ottawa and hint that you might want to set up to see how much money you can get. And I, I think that's extremely damaging, and it's going to end up costing us quite a bit more money. What about the argument, Aaron, you know, it's the auto industry. It's been such a huge part of Ontario, manufacturing, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And this is just continuing that and, and setting the stage for the future. Yeah, I think that, once again, you're running into this 
unstated assumption that we have to be in a certain business. And I'm not, I don't want to downplay the, the damage that is caused to communities when these companies leave. I'm not, I'm not mm-hmm. blind to that at all. But what I'm saying is there, there has to reach, be a point where you're paying more than it's worth to keep them. And I think, especially with these new things, um, you're not even here yet. And you're basically setting yourself up, locking yourself in to be shaken down later. I use the example of Australia, uh, Scott. I mean, this is a country that used to make cars. Eventually, they just gave up because they didn't want to pay the subsidies. And guess what? Their economy adjusted. They still have manufacturing. They make other things. Um, there was no recession. There was no sort of deep hole that was dug. So it is possible uh, to move on from these sectors and still have communities and still have jobs. Uh, you talk, What are the alternatives, Aaron? Um, you talked about perhaps leaving them, let them go to Michigan. We'll do spinoff stuff, whatever. We all know how much uh, pieces of cars and parts go back and forth between Canada, U.S., and Mexico before the final assembly and such. Are there other viable options here? Yeah, What's the when, alternative? when it comes to the, the, the strategy of saying, well, you know what, we want to support certain sectors, I think one thing that policymakers in Canada have to remember is that there are things that can be made anywhere, and electrical vehicles are one of those things, but there are other things that are a lot more dependent on things in the ground, for example, that we only we have. So you have to talk about things like the Ring of Fire, critical minerals, there are other certain, um, especially in Western Canada, agriculture. These are things where Canada has a natural advantage that can't be sort of overcome with subsidies. So the Americans can't, for example, uh, they can spend all the money they want, but they're not going to create these minerals in the ground that we have. So I think if you're going to sort of want to give the leg up or give the edge to a certain sector, you should be looking at ones where you have a natural advantage. Canada has a lot of those things. Uh, Unfortunately, they're not the ones that are the focus of government these days. So you're saying spend more resources on natural resources as opposed to uh, that provide those products as opposed to assembling them? Well, yeah, and, and the irony here is with the with the EVV plants, I mean, the components, the idea is to get someone uh, out of the ring of fire in northern Ontario, but we haven't even built the infrastructure to get it out yet. So yeah. we've built these factories that are going to produce these things that rely on that we, we don't yet have a plan to get out. So I think it's a bit of putting the cart before the horse. And I think it speaks to the fact that the, you know, politicians are so enamored with the, the possibility of the, of the press conference and the photo op that they're not even sort of getting their ducks lined up before they, uh, before they make the announcement. Do we know anything more on the Stellantis deal? Because they, we thought, or, you know, you hear that it's sort of over, but there's nothing official from Stellantis as yet. Uh, any, any inside news on that? No, it certainly sounds like they're still talking. It sounds like they're going to come to some sort of deal. You know, the final number, um, whether we'll get a number, and because people will remember, although they announced a number with the Volkswagen deal, the original last year, there was no number attached to it. So we don't really have a clear sense of how much more it's going to cost this time. Um, I understand Ontario is committed to paying a third of whatever the number is. Um, but the estimates so far, if it's going to match the Inflation Reduction Act, it could be around $19 billion, even more generous than uh, Volkswagen got. Where do we draw the line? Where do we say, okay, you help them this way, but then after that, they're on their own? What do you do? Yeah, well, I think the line's already, I, I think, you know, more than the waste of money, which is tragic, what's troubling to me is that by doing this, uh, you know, Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau are signaling there is no line. There is no amount they won't pay. And that uh, makes me very nervous. And as I said, it, it creates a very perverse incentive for other businesses that may not have even been looking for handouts to say, hey, hey, these guys are willing to pay. They're so desperate to get to get a factory set up here that they'll pay anything. I just think that's that's it's really dangerous and it's going to it's going to create a lot of headaches for future governments as well. 
Aaron Woodrick with us, director of the McDonald-Laurie Institute's domestic policy program, talking about the Stellantis deal and who's benefiting. Aaron, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks a lot, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, soldiers with five Canadian regiments based in Hamilton will be retracing the eight, uh, 1813 steps of the British Army this weekend. Fees for the 2023 edition of the Battle of Stony Creek reenactment have been waived for the outing. Uh, to find out more, Brenda Branch is with us. Event lead for the Battle of Stony Creek reenactment, marketing and promotions officer, planning development, tourism uh, and culture. That's a long one. City of Hamilton, Brenda. How are you today? I'm very well, Scott. How are you doing? So far, so good. Man, you're going to have a good weekend for it. That looks good. We certainly are. And it's supposed to, the temperatures are supposed to go down for the weekend, which is definitely a relief. All right. So before we get into this and what it's all about, give us the logistics, the whens, where's, the ifs, how it's, uh, when it's all happening, how we get there. Okay, so Saturday we are on from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. Battle reenactments are at 3.30 and 8.30 on Saturday. Um, Prior to the battle reenactments on Saturday, we will have Haudenosaunee lacrosse game being played on the battlefield for the first time. Um, So we're excited about that and some Indigenous singing and dancing as well on the battlefield. On Sunday, we are on from 10 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. And the battle reenactment is at 2 o'clock. And why is it free this year? It actually has been free since 2017, since Canada 150. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. It was made free because of the Canada 150 event, and council voted to keep it that way. Um, This has obviously, uh, uh, during the pandemic, global pandemic, had been put on pause and such. What's it going to be like this year? Uh, Much more interest as a result of that. Well, we're, we're certainly thinking so. Um, we were a little worried about, um, you know, enticing our reenactor community back after three long year hiatus, um, but we didn't have a problem there. We have a full, full re- recruitment of in- reenactors. All the encampments are full. Um, our merchants, we have 15 merchants this year, demonstrations. So um, we're hoping that the public show up like the reenactor and merchant communities did. So obviously, after the hiatus, uh, people are very anxious to get this going and, and, and the interest is high. What's it like for the people who participate? Uh, what's it like for them? What I'm hearing a lot from them is it is so nice to um, be back on this site. They love this event. They do a lot of different reenactment events. I've heard a lot of comments about this is our favorite event. Um, And the camaraderie between them is is incredible and it's they're they're actually seeing their friends and, and colleagues on you know in the encampments for the first time some of them so there, there's a lot of talking a lot of friendship going on out there today obviously a lot of interest with those that are participating and such are you expecting larger crowds this year considering the hiatus of late well, we're hoping so. Um, we do have some new programming as well. And uh, I, I think the word has spread because of the hiatus. I think we've got a little bit more media attention happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, we are thinking that we're going to have a record public turnout. We're hoping so. And as you said, great weather. All right. Give us the logistics mm-hmm. again, Brenda. When and where and what is going on? 
Okay, Saturday, June 3rd, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. at Battlefield House Museum and Park. Um, on Sunday, June 4th, 10 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. There is no parking on site. Shuttle buses are running throughout the um, open hours. Um, and the parking is at two schools, near, very nearby schools. Um, one is Sir John Henry Newman at 127 Grays Road. The other is St. David's Catholic School at 33 Cromwell Crescent. Shuttle bus will run continuously through the two schools and the site. Um, all of the information is online at uh, hamilton.ca slash reenactment. Brenda Branch is with us, event lead for the Battle of Stony Creek Reenactment, Marketing and Promotions Officer, Planning and Economic Development, Tourism and Culture, City of Hamilton. It is back over uh, after a pandemic hiatus, and obviously uh, the characters, the actors are ready to put on a show. Check it out, the Battle of Stony Creek happening this weekend. Brenda, thanks so much for the time. Sounds like there's a lot of interest being generated around it. Good luck this weekend. Thanks so much, Scott. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. What are Justin Trudeau's options as the Liberals and David Johnston are pushed further into the corner? Uh, David Johnston said, nope, he's staying put. Uh, Justin Trudeau doubling down on David Johnston. Uh, and, yeah, we'll talk to uh, the leader of the NDP coming up next hour and find out what his options are and what he plans to do next. I'm sure he will play his cards close to his chest. Henry Jasek with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, here now. Henry, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you very much, Scott. Hey, Henry, if you were sitting down with Jagmeet Singh right now, what would you ask him? Well, I'm asking him, is he talking to the prime minister? Uh, obviously, there's a, this is a real big mess for the prime minister and to a certain extent to uh, Jagmeet Singh. And uh, I think really they, they need some uh, need they need to put their heads together and say, OK, we've we got to make a solution here. This is, you know, what is going on, uh, you know, in terms of trust about uh, our elections is uh, not working very well. Uh, people are very unhappy, and we've got to do something here. And we've got to do something more than just yell at each other. We've got to come up with a solution. So I'd ask him, is he talking to the prime minister uh, about any solutions? And does he have any solution in mind that he can give the prime minister to uh, get, you know, sort of lower the temperature? The ball really is in uh, Jagmeet Singh's court at this point, isn't it? He's He's got some power, some leverage here. He does, and... Uh, but the important, but an important skill he needs right now is to basically use maybe a lawyer's skill. Talk to talk to um, the prime minister as if he were his uh, client and saying, "Listen, uh, we're in a difficult position. Uh, we've got to make uh, we've got to make come up with something new. Uh, we've got to make uh, some uh, you know concessions and uh, find a way out of this. We just can't basically uh, you know keep going with this." this you know, uh, uh, yelling matches back and forth saying, you know, uh, that the prime minister says, I'm not going to change anything I'm doing. And uh, and uh, the NDP saying they want him to make some important changes and nothing seems to be happening. And I think this is time for a private conversation between the lawyer and his uh, and his and his hmm. client and saying, let's let, we've got to come up with something. It's interesting you're saying that using a lawyer-client uh, analogy here, and um, it, it's the prime minister who's the client. 
Yeah, he really is. I mean, because he's, <laughs> he's, he's the one who's in, who's in the deepest trouble here, right? So... And, uh, and you know, and Jagmeet is a lawyer. So, you know, I'm, yep. I, I think, I mean, I, I'm sure he, he's had a lot of practice in doing this sort of thing. And, and I think, I, I think he, I hope he recognizes that making, trying to uh, come up with a solution right before, the, you know, in public right now, it's not going to work, you know, work very well because everybody is shouting at each other. You know, it needs to really be something that is going to start off behind closed doors where basically they, they have to agree, the two of them, what's working is, is what's, what's happening is not working, and they've got to just put their heads together and say, okay, what can we come up with which is going to lower the temperature? And uh, there there's all sorts of things that can be done, but they have to basically say they've got to move off their positions in order to uh, to make those things happen. Uh, Andrew Coyne's column in the Globe and Mail today, the headline, if Parliament has no confidence in in David Johnston, how long can it have confidence in Justin Trudeau? Or you could pose the same question to Jagmeet Singh. Exactly. I mean, it's now contaminating him and the, and the NDP uh, because they're the ones that have a lot of leverage. And the way you know you have to deal with it is you. I mean, I just think they have to have to have these secret conversations that, in which they say, we, you know, we can't we can't go on like this, and we got to really talk one to one and and do something. And we have had had a good, a great example in the United States. You know, everybody, you know, mm-hmm. the uh, debt ceiling problem that the uh, that the United States had about possible bankruptcy, and everybody said we're going over the cliff, and uh, this is all horrible, and and. Biden, of course, who's 50 years a politician, said, oh, no, this is not going to happen. And he slowly just moved the, you know, the, uh, the, the uh, Republicans and he changed some of his positions. And lo and behold, we come up with a solution. And, and it can be done. I mean, it can be done in this case. It was done in the U.S. very recently. That's what I mean. I mean, we if we pay our politicians oftentimes to come up with solutions that, you know, are not you know, are not readily uh, available to most people to think of. But, I mean, they're the people who are supposed to come up with things to, to solve our problems. And right now we have a problem, and they've the two of them have got to, you know, solve it. And how many times with a debt ceiling story, I mean, has that happened? It seems every few years we're, we're talking about that again. Is time running out here, Henry? Like, I mean, there's a sweet spot here for Jugmeet Singh. Uh, is the window closing? What's the timeline? Any thoughts on that? Well, I think they have to come up with something, uh, hopefully this month. I mean, the, I don't think the, you know, this whole notion that somehow they should have a vote of non-confidence and have an election. I mean, who wants to have an election in the summer? I mean, the timing for an election is horrible. I mean, people do not want a summer election. Uh, I'm sure all the politicians don't want a summer election. And it, it, it's not really going to solve the problem or, or may make things worse. And we're not going to get an election. But the big problem right now is we, we have, you know, uh, the prime minister who is not seemingly does not have a good solution to the problem he's in. And the person, the only person who has really le- any leverage on him is, is Jagmeet Singh. And he's the one who's got to really, you know, take the initiative and and tell and get and get uh, and put some uh, possible changes to the prime minister that he can accept and which will you know basically uh, look more acceptable to the Canadian population and to to a certain extent the other opposition parties. 
and uh, you know he's got somehow has to bring them in, and he's there are solutions out there, but they've they've got to move off of their current positions. Henry Jasek with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. As always, Henry, uh, thanks for the time. Thanks for the time. Fascinating stuff. Be well. Have a great weekend. Okay, very good. Thank you. Remember, we were talking about the Bay uh, du Nord project off the coast of Newfoundland, $16 billion oil pro- uh, project, energy project, um, you know, good news, blah, blah, blah. And now it's been put on pause uh, for up to three years. And uh, market conditions, volatile market conditions, or just vol- volatile conditions within Canada. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP and with us now. Dan, thanks for your time. Hope you're well. I am good to be here. Unfortunately, he has another uh, another uh, piece of bad information and news that uh, will no doubt hurt Canadians, especially those that are most vulnerable. I remember when this was announced, it was a big brouhaha, and, uh, and because some people were uh, upset that the government was even doing such a thing, but this was supposed to be so cutting edge and such a neat idea. What happened to it? Well, it suffered from uh, an indifferent government that sort of you know gave just barely passing interest in this, uh, you know, uh, in what would have otherwise been, uh, you know, uh, a $10 billion royalty opportunity for both the province and the federal government and create tens of thousands of jobs and probably about 10,000 person years of employment. It, it was it was important because it would also produce up to 200,000 barrels of oil a day. And in a market where it's 70, 80 bucks a barrel, you know, you don't have to go too far to figure that out. That's 20 million bucks injected every day, 80 million, six, 18 million injected into the local economy. Uh, this would have obviously uh, provided, uh, you know, much needed uh, relief to a world that sees Russia increasingly sending its oil as Saudi Arabia to Asia and to China and to India and leaving North America really in Europe to fend for itself. So the timing on this was good. The economics, I thought, were, were, were reasonable. But, uh, you know, when you have an acrid environment, in which you have any, you know, potential for, uh, you know, for disruption, uh, it's just not something where you want to risk your investment in Canada. Like so many other things, uh, on the same day this decision was made on Wednesday, I was doing several interviews as I always do weekly in Newfoundland, and uh, I looked over my shoulder and there was a Westcast in London, near London, Ontario, Wingham, that was shutting down. I remember when that plant opened up because of the cost of energy. Uh, this this came about. Uh, it was just, you know, one thing after another, a succession. And, of course, in the afternoon, the prime minister announcing, uh, or at least rumor had it through uh, Reuters or through Bloomberg, I'm not sure which one, that we had uh, somehow found $19 billion bucks to give to Stellantis after we, you know, basically made a commitment for $13, $14 billion for VW. We don't have the money to do these things. We're borrowing on something that's new, and we're basically throwing away what the world would give its right arm for. That's energy. And, of course, uh, so a good number of people in Newfoundland, especially those who like voting for the federal Liberal Party, well, your opportunity just lasts. Now, basically, you can figure out if the hydrogen industry will work for you down the road. That's not going to happen anytime soon. A recent survey of global uh, chief executive officers said six in ten say that Canada is just not a great place to do business. Is it the same situation here? Is this market conditions or political conditions? Political conditions. And, and the market is being told to go pound sand, go somewhere else. There's no business case. You don't have to be really sophisticated to know that you have a federal government propped up by the NDP that hates oil and gas. And yet oil and gas is at the foundation of our society. 
And if you don't like it, fine, but try to do without it and stop being such hypocrites in, in your stop eating. Stop buying products uh, from whatever. Uh, stop sipping back your lattes from, you know, Starbucks. Uh, and understand that food doesn't just magically grow, you know, out of pixie dust. All these things take a significant amount of energy. And if we think that energy is so bad, there is no replacement. Uh, you know, your windmills cost you $80 a kilowatt hour uh, to run. And you're giving that money to grifters. And we're selling excess supply to the United States at one cent a kilowatt hour, taking a hit. You and I are paying uh, the provincial government is taking a six and a half billion dollar hit every year because we don't want uh, you know our utility rates to go to twenty seven cents a kilowatt hour. There is so much about what we have done that is so fundamentally wrong and unrealistic, and it's time for people to pull the veil of political correctness from their eyes and realize doing away with this industry simply diminishes the human condition, and that means every one of us here. I don't care where you live, anywhere in Canada, without oil and gas, you're dead on a rock. Uh, Tony Keller, had Tony Keller on yesterday, editorial page editor uh, from the Globe and Mail, had a fascinating article and a great discussion, and his headline was, How Big Are Canada's Carbon Emissions Compared to China? We're a rounding error. We certainly remember the Parliamentary Budget office, Officer saying, whether it's regarding the environment or the economy, um, there, there's no gain here. It's all a wash. Uh, and and Tony went on and, and, and wrote an article that, that basically said, you know, we all, we're all concerned about the environment. We all want to do our part, but we're, we're basically playing the wrong game. We're, we're, we're trying to stifle Canada with its 1.5% of greenhouse gases while the rest of the world burns coal like it's going out of style, and we're, and we're sitting on our hands with no business case for Canadian liquid natural gas. Well, you have a prime minister who's never run a business in his life. Uh, I really don't care who the characters are, but uh, some people have actually in their lives gotten off their duff and tried to learn a few things. And you can't just invent the stuff and do your theatrics and, you know, these canned lines. The fact is, Canada was dumb in having signed a Paris Climate Accord that said you get no credit for all the natural gas you could potentially sell to China and India to prevent them from using coal. And that, therefore, keep global emissions down. You're not allowed to do that anymore. you got to sit in your own corner and, and basically masochistically cut yourself to pieces uh, before you get any kind of credit. That's not the way to run an international... Uh, you know, that's not the way we do international treaties. And more importantly, Canada was the solution. We had 17 of the LNG projects up and running, ready to go systematically. This government and its envir- it, it's, uh, its hostility towards uh, energy like oil and gas is one of the main reasons why other countries simply grabbed what we had and ran with it. Hundreds of billions of dollars that could have gone for your hospitals, folks. Don't bitch and complain about hospitals when you don't have the revenue because you've killed the very golden goose that could have provided you with the funding to do those while making the rest of the world a much cleaner place. You have to be pretty stupid, and I, I'm being blunt here, uh, Scott, not to realize this, or at least trendy or tony. The problem with climate bedwetting, which is what it is, is unfortunately it has terrible consequences for Canadians, and they're now starting to learn a very painful lesson of going along with the woke. Are Canadians realizing that if they really want to make an impact on climate change, we're on the wrong track? I don't think we understand what a track looks like. Now, we, we, we were on the right track. We decided to jump off it and try to be something else. Look, the people who have most to benefit and who push this narrative are also the ones who make money free and secure in their government pensions. They don't care about ordinary people. 
some would say that they're actually interested in depopulation. I don't know what the agenda is. All I know is that the result is not going to change anything. What we have in Canada is a solution that the rest of the world wants. We produce energy to the cleanest standards in the world, to the highest environmental, labor, indigenous. All of those are checked off and, and met. Unfortunately, we're nice people, and we allow a handful of grifters to come in and beat us up legally and then take advantage of us uh, by basically getting the federal government to give money to foundations who then turn themselves into charities and recycle money to go out and tell us what a bad job we're doing. It's Hmm. actually, if you look at it, it's worse than a Ponzi scheme. It ought to be criminal. I think a new government will probably say that and start to cut these foundations uh, where they need to be cut, and that's to uh, put a fresh light on the fact that they're using their money to try to bamboozle the public as to just how ungreen we are. The truth is there. They're making a lot of money doing it. There's a handful of them doing it. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, you got 19, 20 billion bucks to throw around. Good to know that our grandchildren and great grandchildren are going to wind up having to pay for that. Dan McTagg with us, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. Uh, the Bay Nord project put on pause. 445 news come. Oh, thank you, Dan. Have a great weekend. You too, Scott. All the best. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, to get his take on uh, everything political in the last week, let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategy Manager, Abacus Data. And with us now, Tim, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Scott, i got to tell you, you'll love this. Yesterday I was in Newfoundland. I'm back in Ontario today. And who did I see? I swear we're not making it up, but Alan Doyle. We are at the same event for a friend who was getting recognized. So there you go, buddy. An Alan Doyle sighting for real. Wow. And it wasn't even in a kitchen. (laughs) Well, it was near one, but it wasn't in one. How's that? (laughs) There you go. All right. So uh, I'm dying to get your thoughts on this. Uh, We're going to have Jagmeet Singh coming up a little later on in the next hour, leader of the NDP. Uh, Obviously, he wants uh, David Johnston to step aside, wants uh, reaffirm the public inquiry, the big vote the other day, majority of House of Commons behind him. Uh, JT and uh, David Johnston said, nope, that's it. What's his next move? What does he do now? Well, if he's really serious about it, he's got a big move he can play, and that is withdraw his support of the Liberal government, uh, or say that he will, unless Mr. Johnson steps aside. I mean, that you know, he's being a bit of a paper tiger at the moment. He's wanting to have it both ways, right? He doesn't want to be offside of the other opposition parties who said Mr. Johnson has to go. Um, but he also doesn't want the government to fall at the moment because, assumedly, he thinks there's still some political benefit in that. As I've learned in life, and I'm sure it's true of you, Scott, it's pretty hard to have it both ways uh, in a sustainable fashion. Uh, it, it, it certainly appears like he is driving the bus. Is that window closing, though? Um, would Justin Trudeau rather go to an election or go to a private or a public inquiry? I don't think the prime minister necessarily wants to go to an election now. Um, look, I, I don't think he wanted. To, I don't think neither neither Justin Trudeau nor Jagmeet Singh see the value. I suspect of having an election on this, and it wouldn't be about this. Uh, I think it would start this way, but then it would turn into to other things. But uh, you know, I I I think Mr. Singh, Mr. Singh feels he can take this particular position because again, um, you know, this while there are polls that are saying that people are paying attention and people 
only, what is it, 27, 28% of Canadians think Mr. Johnson has the credibility to remain, that it's not the number one driving issue. And as I think I said to you last, the last time we talked earlier in the week, I mean, the big rumor around here, which probably works for Mr. Singh as well as it does Mr. Trudeau, is that the government is going to uh, prorogue after they finish um, the June session of Parliament, uh, which is likely done in two weeks. So I think Mr. Singh also wants the clock to run out on this, Scott. Um, Is a public inquiry coming, do you think? It doesn't feel like it at the moment. I, I, I don't know. I think... You know, maybe if there's more stories like um, the one Mr. O'Toole shared with the Canadian public, it will come. But I I think they're all trying to run the clock out uh, and summer to come and people to forget about this. Uh, We'll see if those in the security establishment who've been pushing out um, stories that have kept this um, alive, if they have the same view, I don't think they necessarily will. But it's no buzz that an inquiry is imminent here in Ottawa. Uh, Andrew Coyne, interesting article in the Globe and Mail today. If Parliament has no confidence in David Johnston, how how long can it have confidence in Justin Trudeau? Same question for Jagmeet Singh. Well, exactly. Uh, so, you know, Mr. Singh, you have the same complaint as Mr. Blanchet and Mr. Polyev around this, but you have the ability to change the dynamic. So why aren't you? Um, I mean, you should ask him that when it when it comes. I think he, what he will say to you is, because I heard him answer this yesterday. Oh, we need to make sure that the uh, you know the election can be run safely whenever it comes. Well, there's nothing, even including what we've heard from Mr. Johnson and others, to suggest that yes, there was interference uh, in 2019 and 2023, but or 2021, excuse me. But mechanisms were the mechanisms that were there generally work. So. I suspect you'll get that answer, Scott. Um, but yeah. if he says a different one, you'll have some news. <laughs> um, that being said, uh, we've gone through the last two election and there's cl- elections and there's been clearly interference. And everybody says that this has been going on for decades and will continue for decades. So what yeah, do we do? No Just doubt. hold off elections until, um, yeah. you know... <laughs> There's always some. Well, look, look. You just played it on the radio. I mean, you had the terrible thing playing out in Toronto last night, right? I mean, you had this uh, fellow who would threaten to kill candidates, and they stopped yeah. the debate. But it went forward. There are always going to be different threats to our democracy. That's yeah. just the nature of it. So, yeah, I think that's a weak answer on Mr. Singh's part. It'll be interesting, that's for sure. Tim Powers with us. Tim, as always, thanks so much for the time, especially on late notice, and have yourself a great weekend. You too, buddy. Talk soon. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The leader of the federal NDP, Jagmeet Singh, is here now. Jagmeet Singh, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Wow, you've been getting a lot of attention this week, Jugmeet. Um, uh, the motion was put forth by the NDP calling for David Johnston to step down and reaffirming uh, re, uh, a, a public inquiry and such, even calling him tone deaf for not doing so. Both have said, nope, we're not doing that. We're not doing any of that. What's your next move? What do you do next? It seems like you're in the driver's seat here. We're going to keep on. The, we're going to keep on uh, putting the pressure on the prime minister. We know that from the beginning, the right path was to have a public inquiry, and we're going to keep on pushing for that. For me, democracy is very important. I want to take it very seriously. I want to take protecting it seriously. 
For the prime minister, he wants to ignore the problem and not take it seriously. And for Paul Yev, this is a game for him. He's not even going to look at the confidential information, not even look at what information TSIS has. I'll be receiving that briefing. I'll be looking at that information, and I'll continue to push for a public inquiry. Uh, obviously, pressure hasn't worked to this time. Um, again, many have talked about forcing another election. I'm not sure you have to go that far, but are you having some sort of conversation with him? We were talking to Henry Jasek, professor of political science. He wanted to ask you, are you talking to the prime minister? Are you trying? Are you working out a solution with him? Yeah, I've been raising it since the beginning that uh, even when I was approached about the special rapporteur, I said, whoever you choose, that is not going to be the right path. We need a public inquiry. It has a certain rigor, the cross-examination of witnesses, the public element of it, the fact that witnesses are sworn in. All of those things give the strong appearance of a process that the Canadians can trust, uh, like the Rouleau Commission with the public inquiry into the Emergencies Act. That's a template that we can follow that works. So I've been raising that. I continue to raise that. But to give an example, in the past, Liberals teamed up with the Conservatives to oppose our dental care. They were against it. They were opposed to it. They fought it two different times when we tried to raise it. They voted against it, shut it down. And now kids in our country under 12 have dental care. And by the end of this year, children 18 and under, seniors and people living with disabilities will be able to go to the dentist and all their dental needs will be met for free. That's something that we achieved because we did not give up. So we're going to keep on fighting. We're going to keep on pushing. Uh, at what point, though, is enough talk enough talk? Andrew Coyne in the Globe and Mail, uh, the headline is, if Parliament has no confidence in David Johnston, how can it have confidence in Justin Trudeau? How can you? Especially when you're asking for David Johnston to step down. He was the man that, that obviously appointed him. Well, in terms of the confidence in the sense of metaphorically confidence, I, I, uh, I don't have confidence in the Prime Minister. That's why I have an agreement in writing then make sure that he does the things that I forced him to do. So I needed it in writing. I needed to force the government. The government doesn't want to do dental care. They, they voted against it. Clearly, they didn't want to do it. I forced them to do something they did not want to do to the benefit of Canadians. Millions of people will get dental care. So the reason why I'm able to work in this minority government is because we forced them to put in writing the things that they're going to do for us. They're, in fact, supporting our agenda, which is to help Canadians with better protection for workers, dental care, moving forward with pharmacare, and a host of other steps that we're taking. So we're forcing this government to do things they wouldn't otherwise do. I don't have confidence that they would do these things. That's why I needed it in writing to force them. So the question is, well, what's the next step? And beyond that, well, I'm certainly not going to let them off the hook. They would happily not move forward on dental care. They've been itching to get out of that agreement. I don't want them to. I want to force them to do this because I know it's going to benefit Canadians. On top of that, the real final tool we have is to force an election. If the goal is genuinely to protect our democracy, then how does triggering an election without having heard the full scope of the interference allegations, without actually having any steps in place to protect us against allegations like those, make any sense to trigger an election? If our goal is to protect democracy, well, we should put in place those steps first before we have an election. But that being said, Mr. Singh, I mean, you know, we've been talking about interference for decades now. This has been going on for at least the last two, and many have predicted it's going to continue. So we can't not have an election just because we're concerned about moving forward, especially waiting for this government to actually do something. That being said, what's your timeline here? Because you have done, I believe, the most you can do without actually threatening to force an election. In other words, have you had the conversation, you have a public inquiry, or we're going to force this to a vote 
Well, we're certainly not uh, before having one. I haven't even looked at the information myself. I'm the only opposition leader with the courage to say, yes, I'm going to look at the information that CSIS has about the extent of interference in our electoral system. So I'm going to look at that information. That's the next step for me. Uh, I'm going to give my opinion after having read that information. Uh, and I've written clearly requesting the same latitude that Mr. Johnson had to provide his opinion after reading that sensitive information upon upon things like the government's actions, whether they, they were sufficient or not, uh, opinions on whether or not a public inquiry is still required. So I'll look at those documents, and then I'll provide my opinion after that. I'll continue to push forward. We want to see the dental care delivered by the end of this year. So that's something key. Uh, we have elections every four years anyways. That, that's something that's not going to change. We will have that. But in the context of the serious allegations raised and steps now being taken, I'm going to look at the information. I'm going to continue to raise awareness around what needs to be done. I want to see some steps taken. Even with Mr. Johnson's recommendations, he's mentioned that there was a breakdown in communication with CSIS. So where is the remedy to ensure that that doesn't happen again? He mentioned that there were clear concerns raised, but CSIS didn't provide a course of action. But what are appropriate course of action then? Let's ask for those recommendations around what should be done in the case of interference allegations and nomination meetings. And then how far and how broad is this? Are you worried uh, that if you once you do uh, agree to see that information, because then you can't tell what you've seen, obviously, it's top secret, you're bound by secrecy, that then you've become exactly what David Johnson is? I mean, sorry, nothing to see here. And why will we trust you any more than we do David Johnson or the prime minister? Well, well, first of all, looking at that information does not in any way preclude me from my opinion on it. I can look at the information and say, you know what, the government actually was completely insufficient in their actions. I can look at the information and say, in fact, we absolutely need a public inquiry more than ever. I disagree with Mr. Johnson's findings. So I will look at the information. I think that is what a responsible leader does. If CSIS, our intelligence service, has information on election interference, and I'm able to look at what that information is, I will look at it, and then I will suggest a course of action. This needs to be taken a lot more seriously. There needs to be follow-up. We need to see laws in place that prevent this type of interference. We need to see steps taken so that CSIS has better correspondences with the government. The government needs to take it more seriously, and even if they're not told what to do, they should on their own realize that there needs to be follow-ups taken, a follow-up steps taken. So uh, I'm, I'm confident, in fact, it'll give me more evidence or a more solid footing to make my recommendations. We'll be waiting. Jugmeet Singh with his leader of the federal NDP. Jugmeet, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend. Thanks, you too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I don't want people to have to move to Hamilton if they don't want to. And that's why we need more supply, more affordable, more units in more neighborhoods for more people. (laughs) This is a bizarre story. That is Toronto mayoral candidate Brad Bradford. And I think there's like 500 candidates and has been saying that he doesn't want people to move to Hamilton. He's even got a sign for this because they can't afford to live in Toronto. As mayor, he says he will get more homes built faster across Ontario. Uh, are we, or Toronto rather, are we getting uh, caught up in a Toronto election campaign? Uh, could Hamilton be any other city? We, uh, Kitchener or wherever, uh, Grimsby, it uh, doesn't matter. Or uh, as sensitive Hamiltonians, are we taking this like an insult? Let's bring in Larry DeAnne, former mayor of the city of Hamilton, and with us now. Larry, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hey, Scott, I'm doing very, very well. Always a pleasure to talk to you. 
So what are your thoughts here, Larry? Is this a good election strategy, or is this a little bit of a slight, a little bit of a slam to hammer? Well, let me tell you a secret about Brad Bradford, whom I met, by the way, and quite liked. I was impressed with him. And this was at a, uh, at a, um, a, a presentation that was me- being made in Toronto, and I was the only uh, person who, not, who was not from Toronto at that panel discussion. Um, and uh, Brad Bradford told me, and I was quite impressed with a young man, professional planner, worked for the city, now on council, lives in the beaches and so on. But he went to what to Ancaster High School. He's a yeah. Hamiltonian. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know whether that was known or not. Um, and, and so I don't take his words as an insult at all. Uh, in fact, what he's saying is, in spite of, by the way, our lamentations here in the city of Hamilton, what he's saying is that Hamilton is an affordable city to live in still. And uh, people from Toronto, and we know this, we know this, have been coming to Hamilton now for decades because the dollar goes further, certainly in terms of uh, being able to afford a home, further than in Toronto. Now, everything is relative. Things are still expensive. Things may still be unaffordable for some people. uh, But compared to Toronto, we're doing quite well. And you could really insert any city in this line, couldn't you? Anything outside of of Toronto. Yeah, I mean, Toronto, uh, and look, I, I, I enjoy Toronto. In fact, I was in Toronto this afternoon for a ceremony at Queen's Park, um, and uh, it's a great city. We went to a restaurant there and took my uh, my grandkids, and it, it was just a, a delightful time. I've talked a little bit about the history of Toronto and and uh, the, the history of, uh, of the politics and, and, and Queen's Park. So it, it's a delightful place to visit, but... It is extremely expensive. I don't know how those people yeah. do it, quite frankly. I just don't. So any other city, by comparison, uh, favors well. But we all know that everything is relative. There are people here who are struggling in the city. We've got this issue that uh, has captivated uh, our council, uh, and they're going to try to solve uh, the poverty of the world, uh, which they cannot do. And they're going to try to solve the homelessness uh, crisis and, and and they're allowing encampments as a possible solution for that, which is wrong-headed. Uh, but having said all of that, there are problems. There are problems in any community. Uh, in Hamilton, things are still pretty good for for the majority of us. Is this, do you think, getting more play in Hamilton than it is in Toronto? I'm sure it's being ignored in Toronto. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, no, I, as I say, I was there speaking to Torontonians today. Um, from all walks of life, by the way, uh, and people who were at Queen's Park for a ceremony, and uh, and so consequently people who are aware of uh, the political realities. Uh, it seems to me that the uh, the mayoral election in Toronto is a bit of a yawn. Uh, it's, um, you know, it, it's going to happen. Somebody's going to get elected. But it's not something that's electrifying the public there. And so people are trying different ways, candidates, that is, are trying different ways to attract uh, uh, to attract attention, and this was Brad's way. And again, I think what he was saying is, as mayor, I'm going to make things affordable. Uh, people are now having to drive to Hamilton, and they may not want to be going to Hamilton. Uh, I want them to stay here and be able to afford the city. That's the message. Will it carry? I don't know. Uh, we'll see what happens with Brad's uh, election uh, prospects.
As mayor, he says, I will get more homes built faster uh, all across Toronto. You know what it's like to be a mayor uh, and, and how difficult that can be. How did, how would he do that? <laughs> well, and, and you know, there's this, this whole narrative around building homes, and it's, it's starting with, uh, with uh, Mr. Ford, by the way, and his government in terms of the More Homes Faster Act or whatever they call the legislation that also has incursions on the green belt and so on, um, that, that somehow these people are going to wave their magic wand and, and get homes built faster. Now, there's no question that there is red tape in terms of development. There are all kinds of hoops that have to be jumped uh, before homes go from the drawing board uh, to the submission at City Hall uh, to the approvals process to then the construction of these homes. Sometimes it takes far too long to do that. And so governments should try to cut some of that red tape while paying attention to to, to, to making sure that, that things are not built in a shoddy way. So, so that, there's that. But there's also this narrative that seems to suggest that it can be done by simply wave, uh, waving a magic wand. And election time is the time when these magic wands seem to appear out of thin air. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen as quickly as some of these people are suggesting. And for Brad to be suggesting that, or any of the politicians, because he's not the only one who's saying that in Toronto, Olivia Chow has been saying it. In fact, most of them have been saying it, that if they're elected mayor, they will be able to do it. But let me tell you that unless the city is going to start building homes, which they cannot do, um, then the private sector has to get involved. And then there are all these processes that have to be addressed. So, um, you know, simply saying that you're going to solve a problem isn't the same as actually solving the problem. Um, you mentioned encampments, and we've only got about a, mi- a minute left here, Larry. Um, uh, my goodness, Hamiltonians, I don't think I've ever seen it uh, the way it is now. Uh, some were calling for servicing of these, but again, what happens in the wintertime? It, it, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I'm very uh, disturbed, uh, A, that there are people in our society that, um, that um, are forced to live in this way for whatever reason whether through fault of their own, through addiction, through mental health, through bad luck, through poverty, through a combination of all of those things, it's very sad that this this is going on. But the solution cannot be uh, to allow these encampments to go, as they're suggesting, in designated areas across the city. Right now, um, you know, they're around City Hall, and all you have to do is drive by there to see the, 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 the absolute horror of people having to live in those conditions. Uh, but you cannot replicate that across the city. I think that's wrong-headed. Um, there needs to be a solution to that, and, and we're talking about, in these cases, you're talking about people's mental health addiction issues. Uh, shelters are the solution. Of course, shelters have rules, and some of these people don't like those rules, and that's why they're living rough, as they say. So it's complicated. I get that. But to abet that lifestyle, to allow it to happen right under our noses uh, is criminal, and it should not happen. And for these, some of these counselors who are enablers, um, it's, it's shameful. They think they're doing the right thing, and I have no doubt uh, that they're sincere about that, but they're doing the absolute wrong thing, and, uh, and it should be put a stop to it.
Larry Deany with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton, uh, commenting on all things Hamilton. Larry, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend. Pleasure. You too. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott um, had Jugmeet Singh, leader of the NDP, on the show yes. uh, earlier on this hour and, uh, you know, hammering away with the obvious questions and such. Uh, his position now is because, of course, he wants uh, David Johnson to step down for being tone deaf, uh, wants, uh, reaffor- uh, reaffirms the public inquiry, and then they go, nope, nope, sorry, and that, that's it. Uh, so basically my question was, well, what do you do now? Because they've said no. So he is going to see the top secret information, and then he's going to report back whether he thinks we still need one. To which I said, well, as soon as you jump into that camp, uh, don't you become just like David Johnston in the sense that what if you come out of that meeting and go, oh, you know what, after seeing this, nope, sorry, can't do it. I mean, he'll be as unpopular (laughs) as David Johnston in The Prime Minister. So it was earlier this week that Jugmeet Singh came out with the the what I think is logic that is so strained and convoluted that it truly is is I don't know who came up with it that is well we can't call out the liberals and we can't pull our deal with them we can't force an election until we believe the election will not be affected by outside powers when the entire reason yeah. for the election would have been because of outside powers interfering in election. It was the absolute twisted, contorted logic that yeah. you only can possibly come up with if you know... And I called him. Well, no, if Sorry, you know, no, no. If you know that in the next election, you will in all likelihood not have anywhere close to the power you do now yeah. to yeah. twist arms, and you yeah. know you'll be irrelevant. I called him on that and said, you know, uh, they've been talking about election interference for decades. The last two elections reportedly had uh, election interference. They've predicted it'll happen in the future. So what do you do? Stop holding elections until you get it all figured out? And that's never going to happen. And that's exactly, it's a great question you asked. I'm glad you did. Because, yes, if we were to say we can never hold an election unless there is absolute certainty that nothing could possibly be done to interfere with it ever, Ever. You're right. Uh, we would have a liberal, this liberal government for life because we could never guarantee that. We could never guarantee that, Scott. But that doesn't mean that we should not have elections, as you point out. And furthermore, if the whole issue is let's find out what's going on so we can prevent this from happening, you can't then use that as the reason not to hold an election because we don't know. It's yeah. just, it's contorted to the point where you almost have to be a Romanian gymnast to get yourself in that position. <laughs> uh, I think he's very much in control right now. He's driving the bus. Sure he is. Uh, and, and even Henry Jasek said that, you know, he's the lawyer, the prime minister is the client, and he, and he needs to come up with a solution for that. Um, that being said, he's got a window here that's closing. He has this credibility now. If he Does lets he? this go much further, well, he, if if he, depending on what he does with his with his leverage, but if he lets this go and just joins the club, um, he's lost his moment. I mean, it, you know, I, and I think he can make a bigger dent against the liberals than what we think, simply because, well, and especially if he does this, if if he stands up, my goodness. Well, what so? What is the? And I, I this sounds like it's being snarky. It's really not. 
what is the purpose of the NDP right now? If you're a voter, yeah. if you're a voter, what is the purpose of the NDP? If I am a voter, I simply, probably, and if I'm on the left, why would I vote NDP when they're in all likelihood not going to win power? If I want not to have the conservatives win, and the NDP are simply the wingman, they are the goose to Justin Trudeau's maverick, just vote for maverick in the first place, and then you don't have to have all this stuff. Like, it just, it, it seems to me that what Jugmeet Singh is doing is rendering his own party essentially irrelevant because they are simply an arm of the liberals and if you don't want the conservatives well then just vote for the liberals and cut the middleman out of it yeah yeah exactly i agree all right uh scott radley show coming up after the six o'clock news you can read them in your hamilton spectator have yourself a great show and a great weekend scott uh you as well you may want some cool beverages but uh enjoy it thanks for listening to the hamilton today podcast you can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on 900 chml and online at 900 chml.com scott uh you as well you may want some cool beverages but uh enjoy it Yes, for sure. Uh, all right, that's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, for the last word. Steve on email says, enjoy your weekend. Oh.